The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning, Bereans. We're going to continue our study this morning of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And if you remember in our last study, we looked at just the first two verses. It say, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua, the Christ, and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, in these two verses, we see the big three of eschatology, all right, the the parousia, the coming of Christ. We see the resurrection, the gathering together, and the judgment, the day of the Lord. <clears throat> and that's unusual. You have all three right there in these two verses. And these are synchronous events. They all happen together. So if the day of the Lord had come, as that's what they said, the day of the Lord had arrived, not was coming, not was imminent, it was there, then if that was true, then so would be the resurrection, so would be the coming of Christ. They're all connected. Now we saw that the Thessalonians were upset because some were teaching that the day of the Lord had come. And they were shaken by this. And the reason they were shaken by this is Paul had told them that when that day does come, they're going to get relief. We see that in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. He says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and grant relief to you who are afflicted. So they're being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. They're going to get relief. When's the relief going to come? He says, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. So Paul responds to this teaching that the day of the Lord had come, not by telling them, look out the window. The earth is still there. The earth didn't blow up. People aren't gone. It's still the same as it always was. And, and folks, if the day of the Lord, the resurrection and the judgment, were physical events, then how, sh- how should Paul have responded to this? I mean, that's what he should have done. He just said, look out the window. You guys, of course it hasn't happened yet. But what Paul, in fact, does is tell them, don't be deceived. All right? I don't want you to be deceived by this, because there were things that needed to happen before the day of the Lord would come. So he's not questioning them on the fact that they thought it already come. He's not trying to tell them, what's, you know, it's going to be a physical event and you'll know it. They must have thought it was spiritual. They must have had a different view of the day of the Lord than most Christians today do. Or they couldn't have been fooled at all. Now, strangely, even partial preterist gentry that <clears throat> thinks these two verses, talking about a judgment coming, In A.D. 70, Gentry writes this. He says, verses 1 and 2, Paul's reference concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, 2 Thessalonians 2.1, is the crux interpretum of this passage. Paul is here speaking of the A.D. 70 judgment of the Jews. All right, so Gentry says, this is Paul, he's talking about A.D. 70. He says, the very judgment given emphasis in the first portion of the Olivet Discourse because he wants to divide the Olivet Discourse, can't be divided, the book of Revelation and several other passages of Scripture. 
Now, as we said, these two verses talk about the parousia, the resurrection, and the judgment. So if, as Gentry says, Paul is here speaking of the A.D. 70 judgment of the Jews, then all eschatology was complete, because it all was to happen at that time. But Gentry doesn't believe that, because he's still looking forward to a resurrection and a final judgment. Now, for our study this morning, we're just going to be focusing on verse 3. I really thought we'd get a lot further, but once I got into this, um, we got to spend some time on these verses, because these, these verses are very different, all right? He says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, practically every modern teacher or writer who deals with this text assigns the fulfillment of this passage to our future. Okay? It hasn't happened yet. They're looking for something to come out in the future. That would mean that what Paul told the Thessalonians wasn't true. They're not going to get relief. Because if he hasn't come, how is his coming going to give relief to a first century Thessalonian? For the Thessalonians to get relief at the second coming... It would have to happen in their lifetime. That's not complicated, is it? I mean, we get that. They can't get relief if they're dead, all right? This means that everything in this passage talks about what happened in AD 70. None of this is future to us, all right? These are all historical events. Now, John Bray writes this. He says, this passage of Scripture dealing with the man of sin who would be revealed before the day of Christ, has been one of the most difficult passages in the Bible for Bible scholars. I don't know that it's that difficult, but it is if you want to keep putting it ahead to the future. But here's the advantage. If you say this is yet future to us, you can make up anything you want. Who's going to refute you? Because it's future. You say it's past, then people say, well, then you better tell us what it is. If it's past, it has to have some significance. And we're going to try to do that today, all right? This text is difficult <clears throat> because the things we see here are only found in this text in the Bible. You can't go anywhere else, all right? We don't read about the rebellion in other places. We don't read about the man of lawless in other places. So here's what we have to figure out. What is this rebellion he's talking about? Who is this man of lawlessness? And then in the next verse, he talks about the temple of God. What, what is he referring to by the temple of God? And then he talks about the restrainer, who's restraining the man of lawlessness. What or who is the restrainer? If we can figure these things out, then we might be able to deal with this passage. <clears throat> he talks here about the lawless be, man being revealed. The verb revealed here stands in the emphatic position. It's in the aorist tense, which points to a definite time when he's revealed. And it would read like this, the rebellion comes first, revealed is the man of lawlessness. So for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And what is that rebellion? It's the man of lawlessness, and he's going to be revealed. All right? The rebellion is associated with the revealing of the man of lawlessness. So whatever this event is, it involves this person called the the man of lawlessness. And if you figure out who he is, I think it'll help you understand this text. All right, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. Who is the you that was being deceived? 
All right, you know, I know we go over this so many times, but this is just so basic and so important. He's not talking, the you is not you, okay? The you is the Thessalonians in the first century that he was talking to. And this is a strong double negative with an aorist active subjunctive plus tis implying a personal agency. A purposeful deception was occurring. Now, this serves both as a warning or notice of caution, and it's a summary of what was said in verse 2. The word deceive here is a compound verb. It's exapatao, which is a strengthened form of patao, which means to deceive completely, uh, perhaps deceive successfully. What's interesting about this, it's use of Satan's deception of Eve in 2 Corinthians 11.3 and in 1 Timothy 2.14. So twice, this deceive has the idea of Satan deceiving. And we're going to see Satan later on in this passage. Now, <clears throat> this call to not be deceived is really common a common exhortation in ancient literature. You'll read this in a lot of things. Don't be deceived. And anyone who is not properly grounded in the truth of God's Word is going to tend to be gullible. The sad fact is that all people, including Christians, are too easily misled by impressive personalities and spectacular appeals. And the antidote to this, the antidote to being deceived, the antidote to false teaching, is knowing the Word of God. That's the key. And the key to knowing the Word of God is spending time in it daily. Believers, we need to be reading the Bible cover to cover, I think once a year, just so we're familiar with the Word of God. And when we know it, when we hear these false claims being made by people, we're not going to be deceived. He said, that, for that day will not come unless. Now, the, that day refers back to the day of the Lord that he talked about in verse 2. This is a third class conditional sentence. Some events must happen first. In other words, the second coming was not eminent. He says, don't worry, there's a couple things that have to happen before that can even happen. And one of them is the rebellion. That has to take place. <clears throat> All right. And the next one is the, law, the man of lawlessness revealed. So until those things happen, you don't have to worry. Now, the rebellion. What's he talking about here? Well, this is the Greek word, anapost, anapostathia. An apostathia. And Thayer says it means a falling away, a defection, and apostasy. The New American Exhaustive Concordance has says it means a defection, a revolt, to forsake. But uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, BDAG, in their lexicon says defiance, rebellion, abandonment, breach of faith. Now, the definite article is used in the Greek here, so it's the rebellion. It was a rebellion, obviously, that Christians knew about, they knew was going to take place, because of the way he said that. It's the rebellion. Unless The rebellion has to come first. How did they know about this rebellion? <clears throat> well, if we go to verse 5, Paul says this, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul's just, all he's doing here is reminding them what he already taught them. So they knew. You know about the rebellion. You know about the man of lawlessness. So let me remind you here about it. I told you these things. You know them. Now, the word first here is protos. That is, before the day of the Lord, two events are going to have to occur. 
The rebellion occurs, and as it does, the man of lawlessness is revealed, revealed through this rebellion. Now, this word, apostatheia, is only used one other time in the New Testament. And I think that helps us to understand what he is saying here. That's found in Acts 21.21. And they have been told about you that you teach all Jews everywhere among the Gentiles to forsake, apostatheia, Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So I think Paul is saying that the rebellion is going to violate the law of Moses. Now this connects with the man of lawlessness sitting in the temple that we see in the next verse, because the temple was the central place to the practice of the Mosaic law, and his lawlessness, I believe, is against the Mosaic law. Now this word, apostatheia, was used in Greek literature of political or military rebellion. So it can be used that way. But in the Septuagint and in the Apocrypha, it refers to spiritual rebellion. Now, part of the Jewish eschatological expectation was that before the end would come, there would be an apostasy, a falling away from God. So some see this, I, I, would, I guess I shouldn't say some, most see this rebellion as a spiritual rebellion referring to Christians forsaking the faith. That's how most see this. That's why they're looking forward in the future, okay? Paul did predict a spiritual falling away. He says in 1 Timothy 4.1, For the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. But Paul says here it's not a mass rebellion. He said some will. But the most important thing here is when does this rebellion happen? He says, in the latter times, which ended in A.D. 70. So he's not talking about anything in our future here. Some see this apostasy of the Christian church. Some refer to the time of Constantine, which gave rise to the papacy in the Roman Catholic Church. But those weren't the latter times either. Paul says this rebellion, this what he's talking about here, would happen prior to A.D. 70, the end time. All right? Now, the futurists have generally associated the idea with a future apostasy among Christians from the Christian faith. That's how they, most of them interpret this. What's interesting, some more modern-day futurists have associated the idea of falling away here. They, they take the, fall, the word falling away and they translate it as departure, which it can, it can be used that way. It's a departure from something, all right? And they say it's a departure from the church from the earth that's talking about the rapture. Well, that's not what's going on here, all right? <clears throat> Translations like the Amplified Bible, you all familiar with that? Don't help at all when you look at this verse. It says, let no one in any way deceive or entrap you. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And then they tell you what the apostasy is. That is the great rebellion, the abandonment of the faith by professed Christians. That's not even close to what this is talking about, but see, that's their opinion. And this is a commentary. This is an opinion. This is not a translation. It does not belong in a Bible. So if you're using this Bible, please stop, okay? Because you're not getting the Word of God. You're getting other people's opinion on the Word of God. And it's best to you to try to figure that out without getting their opinion because, like I said, their opinion is pretty far off. G.K. Beale writes this. 
Furthermore, that 2-3 is about a massive apostate movement toward the end of history in the church and not in Israel is apparent from the phrase God's temple in 2-4. All right, so here's Beale, who's a pretty intelligent guy, but he says, well, this is, this is about the church leaving, not Israel. And you know why? Because look, he says temple. Oh, well, that just seals the deal, doesn't it? We'll talk about the temple next week, but kind of foolish. Bill goes on, this reference to the temple shows that the church community is the place where end-time prophecies about Israel and its temple will take place. <laughs> yeah, don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> Beal wrote this, okay? This is in Beal's commentary on 2 Thessalonians, all right? And I read this and I thought, what did he just say? These are end-time prophecies about Israel and Israel's temple, but they take place in the church. <laughs> Here's the problem. The temple that Paul refers to, is that the church? Is that what he's talking about? That's what Beale thinks. I don't, I'm not convinced of that. Now let me just say here that he talks about the, end, the eschatology. Here's one thing we have to understand. All eschatology, every bit of it, is Israel's eschatology. Okay? The church has no eschatology. There's no end times for the church. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant. It doesn't have end times. It doesn't have last days. So only Israel had last days. Our Beal goes on to say this, Consequently, 2, 3 through 4 teaches that the latter-day assailant will come into the midst of the church and cause it to become predominantly apostate and unbelieving. So Beal believes that in our future, yours and my future, the church is going to become predominantly apostate and unbelieving. Is that encouraging? <laughs> I mean, that's his view. Okay, the whole church is just going to forsake the Lord. I don't know what happens then. So is Paul telling the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord is thousands of years in their future? That's what Beale said. This, this apostasy, this rebellion is way off in the future for them. It's still future for us. If that was true, why would they care? How many of you care what's going to happen in 2,000 years? Has it ever crossed your mind? What can I do to prepare for the next, you know, what will happen in 2000? I don't, you know, that never crossed my mind. And it never crossed the Thessalonians' mind either. All right? Let me ask you this. Does the Bible predict a massive apostate movement for the church? Not that I know of. And someone will say, well, what about, you know, Matthew 24.10? And then many will fall away and betray one another. And hate one another. Okay, you know where this passage is, right? It's Matthew 24. This all happens in the Lord said, that generation, everybody, they're going to see all this? Because of the great persecution in those days, many are going to apostatize. And this all happened before the fall of Jerusalem, just as the Lord said it would. It all happened to that generation. Now, I think that's a predominant view, that this is talking about some future rebellion of Christians all giving up and walking away from the faith. There's another viewpoint on this that I think fits a little better with history. 
And that's that this reference is to a Jewish rebellion. And it's possible that this is what Paul had in mind rather than a falling away from the faith. Notice how the ESV translates apostatheia. It's a rebellion. And again, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich say defiance, rebellion, abandonment. Now, Dr. Benjamin Warfield, who was professor of systematic theology in Princeton Theological Seminary. You know Princeton used to be a Christian school? (laughs) This was back in 1886, okay? (laughs) All right, when it was first developed. Warfield believed that the falling away mentioned here was that of a Jewish apostasy. He said this, Finally, In this interpretation, the apostasy is obviously the great apostasy of the Jews gradually filling up all these years and hastening to a completion in their destruction. That the apostle certainly had this rapid completing apostasy in his mind. In the severe arraignment that he makes of the Jews in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14-16, which reached its climax in the declaration that they were continually filling up more and more full the measure of their sins until already the measure of God's wrath was prematurely filled up against them and was hanging over them like some laden thundercloud ready to burst and overwhelm them. Adds an additional reason for the supposing his reference to be this apostasy. Above all others, the apostasy in this passage. So <clears throat> the nation of Israel and Jerusalem, <clears throat> excuse me, were certainly revolting, rebelling against Rome at this time. There was a rebellion going on. Now, I believe this was the apostasy. This was the rebellion. It was growing stronger. The conflict, you know, was the order of the day, and war was inevitable. Now, we know from the Jewish historian Josephus and other sources that in AD 66, a large-scale rebellion rose up in Israel through the efforts of the zealots, leading to Rome declaring war on Israel. Now, I think that is what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about Christ coming in judgment against Israel using the Romans, and he's saying, listen, this won't take place before the rebellion. Because it's the rebellion that causes the destruction. So he's not going to come and destroy Jerusalem until the rebellion takes place. We have to see that. We have to understand that. And this rebellion was led by the zealots. And there was groups going on in the time of the Lord. All right, But it just got stronger and stronger. Now the zealots were a group of Jewish revolutionaries, basically. They were zealous in their resolve to eliminate, exterminate, and extricate the Romans. They want, you know, they're under Roman bondage. They don't want that. Now, the zealots fought against the Roman occupation of Israel. And the zealots used the biblical prophecies of the Messiah crushing the enemies of Israel as their basis for their rebellion. They were sincere. They were enthusiastic. They were dedicated. And yet they were very wrong in what they were doing. Now, notice what Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city 
and the sanctuary. Now, Daniel's city and sanctuary, of course, was Jerusalem. And he talks about the people of the prince. Well, who is that? Well, the nearest <coughs> antecedent for coming prince in verse 26 carries us back to 25, which is the Messiah, the prince, who was cut off. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, Christ becomes the one and only prince in this whole context. And the people of the prince speaks of who? Jewish people. Jewish people, they're the ones responsible for the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. That's why he said, they shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, why would the Jewish people do that? It's their city. It's their sanctuary. But that's what he's telling us is going to happen here. Rome did not initiate the war against Jerusalem. The zealots in Jerusalem incited the Jews to rebellion against Rome, quit paying taxes, oh, let's overthrow Rome. Josephus records the regular high priest, Annas, as saying this. The high priest is speaking, he says, Certainly it had been good for me to die before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations. This is what was going on with the zealots. They were just stirring everything up. So the wickedness within the city was great. The city itself was in civil war. So I see the rebellion here as the rebellion led by the Jewish zealots against Rome. And that fits in the timeline that Paul gives us. And then he says the man of lawlessness is revealed. Let me just say here, there's a, text, there's a textual discrepancy here in the Greek between man of lawlessness and man of sin. Not that there's a huge difference, okay? Because law, sin is lawlessness, all right? So it doesn't make a huge difference. But there's a, Greek pro, there's a problem there textually. Uh, the word lawlessness is found in the Greek Unical manuscripts. It's found in Aleph. It's found in B, the Coptic, Aramean translations, and the Greek text used by Origen and Marcion, according to Tertullian. While sin is found in manuscripts A, D, F, G, K, P, L, and the Vulgate. All right? But <clears throat> here's the thing. When, you, when it comes to manuscripts and you know, what manuscripts are right, what are correct, what has the most usage, there's a, there, a thing called the, US, the UBS-4 which is a textual commentary on Greek texts. And it, they, they rate different texts, what's the rate? And they rate lawlessness here as almost certain, meaning they're saying it should be lawlessness, it shouldn't be sin. Like I said, it's not a huge difference. Just want you to be aware some translations will bring that to your mind to show you, well, there's a discrepancy here on this. It doesn't really matter much. All right. Well, the matter of lawlessness is going to be revealed. <clears throat> Again, this is an aorist passive subjunctive. The passive voice implies an outside agent. The subjunctive, the subjunctive mood does not imply that it may not occur, but confirms the ambiguous but future time of the revelation. So who is this man of lawlessness? Okay, we know the rebellion is the Jewish rebellion from AD 66 to 70. So who would be the man of lawlessness? Well, John Bray writes this. He says, During the days of the Reformation, all of the reformers, without exception, believed the Pope was the man of sin. So that's the man of lawlessness, the Pope. All right. Now here's my question. Which Pope? All Popes? 
I mean, which one? Well, obviously, if it was during the Reformation, then they must have thought it was the Pope that was going on then. Well, that would mean he's dead and gone, right? So that would put it not in our future, but it still puts it way too far in the Thessalonians' future to be relevant at all. G.K. Beale tells us who the man of lawlessness is. He says this, A second reason the reader should not be misled in believing that Christ has already come is become the, because the eschatological appearance of the Antichrist must also precede the Messiah's last advent. Commenting on this same verse, John MacArthur writes this, We're embarking upon a fascinating text of Scripture in this chapter, one that presents to us a man who is known by the title Antichrist, the most fiendish, the most wicked, the most powerful, destructive human ever to walk the earth is a man that the Bible calls Antichrist. He will be the culmination of all those who hate God and all those who hate Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, by the way, this chapter, talking about Second Thessalonians chapter 2, this chapter gives us more specifics about the Antichrist than any other chapter in the New Testament. You should be laughing at this, okay? There's nothing in this chapter about Antichrist. He's not mentioned in this chapter. They're all saying, this is the Antichrist. Well, he said, listen, this chapter gives us more specifics about the Antichrist than anybody. It gives us no, nothing about the Antichrist, so then I guess we can't know anything about him. They just decide, hey, this guy, this man of sin, he's the Antichrist. Well, actually the Reformers kind of agreed with MacArthur here because the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist? Okay, so the, they call... Pope, the Antichrist, but then they say the man of sin, connecting him with 2 Thessalonians 2, the son of perdition, connecting him with the, our text that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. So if you're in the Reformed times, you're, you're saying, oh, the Pope, he's the Antichrist. You know, we've got to watch out for the Pope. Well, they missed it by 1,500 years, you know. Most, if you pick up a commentary and read it on this text, most commentators call the man of lawlessness the Antichrist. The problem is, the Bible never does. I know that's a small detail there, but we might want to pay attention to that. So who is the Antichrist? Well, the word Antichrist is found only in five times in the whole New Testament. And guess what book it's not found in? <laughs> Thessalonians. Guess what other book? I mean, this is the Antichrist. It's not in Revelation. What? The Antichrist is man who's, you know... Yeah, it's not, it's not in Daniel either, okay? It's only found five times. Let's look at them, just so we understand what's going on here. First John, first time it's mentioned, 2.18. Children, it's the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. All right, so John tells us it's the last hour. The last hour closes a succession of hours. That makes sense, right? 
It's the end of the last day, which was an end of the last days, the days of the Old Covenant, and the last days of the nation Israel. The last days ran from Pentecost to A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Almost all scholars interpret John's last hour as a reference to the entire period between Yeshua's ascension and a still future to us return of Christ. So for them, this last hour has lasted nearly 2,000 years. That's a long hour. I mean, how do we fit that in the timeline? Okay, this is a long, long hour because it's still going on. Well, he uses the term Antichrist here. Now, this is a term that has become very familiar to Christians because it's been misused so much. It's a somewhat ominous word that carries certain apocalyptic visions. In this verse... It's both singular and plural. And both usages lack the article. It is not the Antichrist, it is Antichrist. Now, Moulton and Milligan cite examples to show that the Greek prefix anti, when added to a person's name or title, can mean one of two things. Now, this, is, this should blow your mind. Okay, anti. We think someone's Antichrist, what is he? He's against Christ. The first definition they give to claim to be that person. So they say that the prefix anti put in front of someone means you're claiming to be that person. I, I, I don't get that in my thinking, but I guess things times have changed as far as understanding that. So this person's claiming to be Christ. Or, he says, the second one, opposition to, substitution for that person. This person basically is against Christ. So antichrists are those who oppose Yeshua, they oppose his teaching. John is the only New Testament writer that uses this word. And it only occurs five times in four verses. We see it twice in this verse. Let's look at the next one. It's in verse 22. He says, who is a liar? But he who denies that Yeshua is the Christ. This is the antichrist. What's he doing? He's saying... Yeshua is not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. Clearly, Antichrist is one who openly and overtly denies that Yeshua is the Christ. That is to say, he speaks lies concerning Christ. He denies that Yeshua is the Christ, which is fundamentally a denial of the nature and the identity of the work of Christ. The next one's found in 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. You test them, we test them through the Scriptures. But many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Then he goes on to say, every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. This is the Spirit of Antichrist. So this is a spirit here. It's not just a person. It's not a person. It's not a dog. It's a, it's a spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. All right, the word confess here is homologeo. And homologeo means to say the same thing. So confessing Christ, therefore, means you're saying the same thing about him that God says about him, that he is equal to the Father in every way. So anyone who doesn't say the same thing about Yeshua as God he says, possesses the Antichrist spirit. So we see here that whatever the spirit of Antichrist was, 
which was part of the false prophets of that day, it was already present when John wrote this. That was the spirit that denied that Yeshua the Christ had come in the flesh. Paul's opponents, the people he's battling in 1 John, the secessionists, were saying that, no, he didn't come in the flesh. That was a phantom. It wasn't the real Christ. The real Christ came upon this man later, left before the crucifixion. They were denying he, he had a human existence. We see the final use in 2 John. So every use is by John. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. Again, this idea they're saying, hey, he wasn't a human man. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So anyone who has an aberrant view of the nature of Christ, the deity of Christ, or the humanity of Christ, is an Antichrist. He's anyone who attacks Christ. He's any person who is against Christ. Any person who attacks the deity. Any person who attacks the humanity of Christ. Possesses the spirit of Antichrist. Now the general concept of a powerful end-time figure opposed to God is found in Jewish apocalyptic writings. So many see Antichrist here as an end-time figure spoken of as the little horn of Daniel 7. And the beast and the false prophet of Revelation 13 have been popular representations of the Antichrist also. But they're not called Antichrist. They have other names, and they're never called Antichrist in the Bible. Although church leaders in the 2nd and 3rd centuries attempted to merge these texts with the Antichrist tradition. In other words, they just took Antichrist and put it on the beast, put it on the false prophet. Also added to this list was the man of lawlessness. They read Thessalonians. Here's this man of lawlessness. This must be the Antichrist also. So they just threw that title in there. However, this being is never called, our our man of lawlessness is never called Antichrist, but instead is referred to as the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, the son of perdition. Now, the Bible does not specifically say that Antichrist is any of these figures, but we can say that all these figures were Antichrist. In other words, they're not said to be the Antichrist, but they are Antichrist. It's possible that the author merely has in mind the secessionists, those opposing Christ. And John doesn't refer to the spirit of Antichrist in 4.3 as the controlling force behind the secessionists opponents. He said, so now many antichrists have come. It's a perfect active indicative. The spirit was already present and active in John's day. Now some commentators understand this to refer to the Roman Empire of John's day, while others see it as a yet future world empire and the last day. Notice that the arrival of the last hour is signaled by the appearance of many antichrists. Let me give you a profound thought here. There couldn't be Antichrist until there was Christ. Is that heavy? (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) In the first century after Christ, there arose many Antichrists, signifying it was the last hour. Now that hour ended in AD 70, but there have been Antichrists ever since that time. John when writing saw his adversaries as Antichrist. A century later, Tertullian saw his adversaries as Antichrist. And many centuries later, the Reformers saw the Pope, their enemy, as the Antichrist. 
So, so everybody's, you know, again, and th that's true. If they're against Christ, they're antichrist. That's a spirit. It's not a person. Not one person, one figure that they're looking forward to. Now, from looking at the scriptures, we see the Antichrist doesn't appear to refer to a singular apocalyptic being. And it's interesting, 1 John 2.18 doesn't even employ the definite article. It just uses Antichrist to describe someone. In fact, the author sounds like he has a specific group in mind because 1 John 2.18 says, there are many Antichrists. Bottom line here is that Antichrist was not initially some supernatural apocalyptic figure in the Bible. Such figures are often given different names and are described differently. Antichrist in the Bible are simply those who deny Yeshua was the Christ and that he came in the flesh. Everything else is a much later, you know, makeup of all the, the things they try to put it together and say the Antichrist, he's the super figure, he's the bad guy. This man of lawlessness is often equated with the beast of Revelation 13. So, again, most commentators will say, okay, this, this guy, this man of lawlessness, he's the Antichrist, which it doesn't say that. Others say, no, this man of lawlessness, he's the beast from Revelation 13. David Chilton said, St. Paul called Caesar the man of lawlessness. No, he didn't. Gentry also believed that Nero was the man of lawlessness. Gentry says, the man of lawlessness is Nero Caesar, who also is the beast of Revelation. No, Nero doesn't fit this, because if we look at verse 4, it says, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so he takes his seat in the temple of God. Nero died in AD 68. The parousia of Christ didn't happen until AD 70. And one of the problems is Nero was never in the temple. So how could he be said that he sat in the temple? This man of lawlessness was one who just was destroyed, we see in verse 8 of this text, with the brightness of his coming. Well, Nero was dead two years before the coming. So this does not refer to Nero. Now Gary DeMar says that the man of lawlessness was the high priest who officiated at the temple prior to its destruction in AD 70. Damar says, the man of lawlessness was the principal religious leader of Israel, the high priest, who officiated over Jewish law and did not concern himself with using the law in a God-honoring way. He goes on to say, he, the high priest, was the man of lawlessness as defined by the provision of the new covenant. I disagree with that. And uh, we'll go into that more next week. But John Bray writes this. He says, There have been a thousand interpretations as to who the man of sin was, or is, or will be. He says, Now there will be 1,001, because he's given us another one. Perhaps we shall never know exactly who fulfilled this prophecy. He was the key man in the destruction of Jerusalem. That is the most important thing you got to hang on to. Okay, Whoever this man was, you can throw out a lot of names. Whoever he was, he's the key man in the destruction because he caused the rebellion which brought the Romans in to destroy Jerusalem, which was the coming of Christ in judgment against Jerusalem. So he's the key guy here to this destruction. Bray goes on to say, the greatest instigator of the tribulation upon the Jews in the city and an abomination himself as he sat in power in the temple itself.
So as you can see, there's a lot of different ideas as to who the man of lawlessness was. It's my opinion that the only way you ever figure this out is looking into history and looking at what some of the historians have to say, you know, primarily the Jewish historian Josephus. So let's look at just a little bit of history here. <clears throat> According to Josephus, Cestius Gallus attacked Jerusalem. He was the first person of Rome sent by Nero. The Emperor Nero sent Cestius Gallus against Jerusalem. The rebellion started, so he says, okay, go squash that rebellion, go take care of them. Well, the problem was the Jews won that battle, and Cestius pulled out. If Cestius had continued the battle, Josephus says, a little longer, he would have taken the city. Then Josephus goes on to say, he retired from the city without any reason in the world, but he did not hasten fast enough, and the Jews everywhere took almost all of Cestius' army prisoners. So he comes against Israel, he attacks, he says, I'm not winning, I'm going to back off. And when he tries to back off, they're killing him. They killed 5,300 footmen, 380 horsemen. And this was in the 12th year of Nero's reign. Nero reigned for 13 years and 8 months. And Josephus says this, He retired from the city without any reason in the world. Anybody have a clue why Cestius Gallus backed away from the city other than he was getting beat? Hmm? Well, yeah, because God told us he would. He said, what? Where does it say that? Well, let's look at Luke 21, 20, 21. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, oh, here's Cestius Gallus and the armies of Rome coming around the city, then know that its desolation has come near. That makes sense, right? We're in trouble, except we're going to win this war. But its desolation has come near. All right, then he says this. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, let me ask you a question, people. How do you flee to the mountains if the city's surrounded by armies? How do you get out? And let those who are inside the, inside the city depart. Get, if you're in there, get out of there. How? There's an army out there. And let those who are out in the country, let them not enter it. Well, Cestius' retreat was in the providence of God. See? God allowed the Christian Jews in the city, they see the armies, they're like, oh man, the Lord told us about this, we're in trouble now, but then they back away and they're like, okay guys, go! And they run. And they escape the city. Josephus said this, by complying with those Jewish Christians, fled to the mountains of Perea and escaped the destruction. They said, man, it's time, you know, this is what the Lord said, it's our break, let's get out of here. And they took off. Now, speaking of one of the zealots, <clears throat> Josephus writes this. There arose a treacherous person, a man of Gishala, the son of Levi, whose name was John. His character was that of a very cunning and very knavish person, beyond the ordinary rate of other men of eminence there. And for wicked practices, he had not his fellow anywhere. Poor he was at first, and for a long time his wants were as a hindrance to him and his wicked designs. He was a ready liar, and yet very sharp in gaining credit to the fictions. He thought it a point of virtue. To delude people, and delude even such as were dearest to him. He was a hypocritical pretender to humanity. And where he had hopes of gain, he spared not the shedding of blood. 
His desires were even carried to greater things, and he encouraged his hopes from those mean, wicked tricks which he was the author of. Josephus said he got together a band of 400 men, and they laid waste to Galilee. Josephus goes on to say, Then Nero, the Roman emperor, sent Vespasian to war in Judea following the (laughs) ignominious defeat of Cestius Gallus. Anybody know what ignominious means? Huh? Yeah, just it would be more causing public disgrace or shame. Yeah, that's a word we use all the time, right? <laughs> ignominious. His ignominious defeat. It was a feat the shameful. It was, you know, public disgrace. Of Cestius Gallus, who had tried and failed. So Cestius Gallus tries, he fails, he's getting whipped, he backs off. They leave Jerusalem, the Christians who are wise, they get out of there. Then Nero sends in Vespasian, and he goes on to say this. He says, now this was the work of God. This is interesting. Josephus is not a Christian, okay? He's a Jew. This is the work of God, who therefore preserved this John, that he might bring on the destruction of Jerusalem. So Josephus is here blaming the destruction of Jerusalem on John of Gishla. He's saying, this guy, the Lord preserved him to bring this destruction. He's blaming it on this. Now, inside the city, the Idumeans killed 8,500 of the people. They plundered every house. They killed everyone they met. They killed 28 high priests, including Annas. And Josephus says this, I should not mistake if I said that the death of Annas was the beginning of the destruction of the city and that from this very day, may be dated the overthrow of her wall and the ruin of her affairs. Now, hopefully from this you can pick up, as we get into the later text, there's a man of law, there's a, man, there's a restrainer restraining the man of lawlessness. And here he says the death of Annas, who's the high priest. Now, see, Damar says Annas is the man of lawlessness. I think Annas here is actually the restrainer of the man of lawlessness until... He is killed. We'll get into that next week. Josephus goes on to say, John set on fire those houses that were full of corn. All right, the city's surrounded by enemy. So they're locked up. It's a siege, a three and a half year siege. Well, you need all the food you have, right, in this siege because you can't go out and get any other food. You're stuck there. And so they're burning up the food they actually have. <clears throat> and all the other provisions which would have been sufficient for a siege of many years. But because of the rebellion that's going on, everything's getting destroyed in the city. Then Josephus writes, John took possession of the temple and the adjoining parts. Hang on to that thought. We'll get back to that next week. John had the throats of cut of anyone with the least suspicion of going to the Romans. So if he thought, hey, this, this person's thinking about, I don't know, he, he can read people's thoughts, I guess. They're thinking about going to the Romans. Cut their throat. All right, They just didn't want anybody to get away, all right? <clears throat> Bray goes on to say, John Levy of Gishala was this man of sin, who Paul said would be revealed before the day of Christ should come. So it was not the Romans, but John who first defiled the temple. Titus showed his concern for the temple in these words to John. So here he's making it very clear, his position, in other words, John Bray, he held a position that John Levy of Gishala based on what Josephus said, he's the man of sin. 
who Paul says is going to be revealed. And so and at the time he's writing this to the Thessalonians, this hadn't been revealed. The rebellion hadn't started yet. It's still 14 years in the future. All right. And so this hadn't come about. But he say, he's saying that this is the man. And he's saying it's not the Romans who first defiled the temple. And then he says this. He says, Titus showed concerns for the temple in these words to John. So these are the words he records of Titus talking to John of Gishla, the zealot. He says, I appeal to the gods of my own country and to every god that ever had any regard to this place, for I do not suppose it to be now regarded by any of them. In other words, he's saying, I don't think any god cares about this place anymore. Obviously, it's getting tore up, all right? He says, I also appeal to my own army and to those Jews that are now with me, and even to you, yourselves, that I do not force you to defile this your sanctuary, and if you will but change the place whereof you will fight, no Roman shall either come near your sanctuary or offer any affront to it. Nay, I will endeavor to preserve you, your holy house, wherever, whether you will or not. So Titus is saying, look, I don't want to destroy this sanctuary. I'm not going to defile the sanctuary. You know, move out of there so we can fight fairly. And just they wouldn't have anything of it. Okay? They just, they didn't want part of that. All right? So he's saying the man of lawlessness, that's who this is. So Bereans, I believe that the man of lawlessness is not a future beast. He's not a future antichrist. He was a first century zealot in the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself, which was existent when Paul wrote these words. It's the Jewish temple he's talking about. We know from Josephus and other sources that in AD 66, a large-scale rebellion arose in Israel through the efforts of the zealous leading Rome to declare war on Israel. That started the war. All right? So I see the rebellion that is led by the zealots. That's what started the Jewish war. began in 66, ended in 8070. It was three and a half year of tribulation. And those who were caught up in it, it was a horrible thing. We've you know, when we did Matthew 24, we talked about the Great Tribulation. We talked about some of the things that went on in there. Uh, mothers were eat, roasting and eating their own children. I mean, it was just a murderous time. People were swallowing gold and trying to escape. And they would catch them and they would cut their stomachs open to get the gold out of it. It was just, it was a horrible time. They say the bodies just lay everywhere. And if you tried to bury them, they would kill you for trying to bury those bodies because they just wanted them. They were laying everywhere, festering, stinking. It was, it was just a horrible, horrible thing. But that was the Great Tribulation. And the man of lawlessness, he's the one leading the revolt. All right? It could have been John Levy of Gishla, as Bray says. But there's another candidate. It could have been Eliezer Ben Simon or possibly some other zealot. I don't know that we can be absolutely confident on which man it was. Several of them kind of fit loosely, I think. But I'm confident that it was one of the first century zealots. These zealots caused the city to be in an uproar. They caused them to rebel against Rome. That brought Rome in to destroy the city. So Paul is telling the Thessalonians, look, don't worry about the day of the Lord already being here. It can't come until the rebellion comes. And the rebellion won't come until the man of sin is revealed because he's going to lead this rebellion, bringing Rome in against Jerusalem, which is 
the second coming of Christ in judgment on the city of Jerusalem. People, we're not looking for some antichrist in the future. We're not looking for some terrible beast who's going to, you know, we're not looking for the church to turn away and walk away from God in our future. That's not a very positive eschatology. We have a very positive eschatology, okay? This is all, it all ended in the first century in AD 70. All eschatology was Israel's eschatology. The church has an everlasting covenant with God. And believers, you know, we go on on this life trying to be the best image bearers we can be, pointing people to our God, telling them about salvation by grace through faith, calling them to believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ. People say, well, what's in our future? Heaven. When we leave this place, heaven. But we've got work to do here. We're called you know, to be here not just to take up space. We're called to share the gospel and be an influence, salt and light in the world in which we live. That's our calling. Well, we'll get more into this text next week and talk about the temple and everything else that goes along with that. Talk about the restrainer. So read ahead in the passage. Hopefully you, you've already got enough that you should be able to have a pretty good clue on what's going on in this text. Again, that's only found here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace to us. Lord, I thank you for the historical writings we have that give us so much insight, Lord, into the truth of Scripture. Father, thank you for the truth of preterism, Lord, that we understand that when you said it was soon, you meant soon. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that we can trust you. We hold to the words that you have said. And we believe, Lord, that time does define nature. And because you said it was soon, we know it was a spiritual coming. Help us to rest in that, Lord, and not be caught up in the fear-mongering of this end-time, cataclysmic, doomsday idea. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.